Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 389 featuring Mike Romy, who's currently the director of pipeline and software development over at Fuse Effects. But I have actually known Mike for many, many years, actually. I've met him long, long ago when he and he was working with my wife, believe it or not, uh, uh, and many moons ago, but he's actually been at several incredible places and has an absolute passion for pipeline, something that is extremely hard and tedious and complicated, but he loves to dive into pipeline. And uh, I thought it was really cool to talk to Mike. Kristen, what do you think of Mike? Yeah, well, he has had quite a career. Um, he kind of takes us. He kind of started off his biggest job was like at Zoic and then to Walt Disney Imagineering on to Madison Square Garden Entertainment. And like you said, now Fuse of X. Um, he's had over like 20 years experience in uh, delivering like innovative solutions for theme parks, broadcasting production gaming, um, and then big data analytics in mission critical environments. So just it just podcasts, it just has a lot of great stories um, and, and uh, information. You guys talk, you know, about real time CG. And he just really has like a passion for the product and process and like servicing the entertainment production through uh, technology based solutions. Um, and it's just like, it's really interesting to hear him. And he's like, just an efficient worker. Like you said, pipelines is his thing. Um, so mm -hmm. it's kind of fun to see where like his career take him next. Absolutely, yeah. Now he's but he's done a lot of stuff in that area, and obviously has a big. Uh, he really understands uh, databases and how to get data across multiple big shows and things of that nature. So it was really cool talking to Mike, uh, and you know he's. I just like Mike. He's just a really good guy. So it's really nice talking to him and catching up as well. Okay, we've got a couple of announcements. Kristen, what's going on? Yeah, so we've mentioned this a few times, but V-Ray 6 for 3DS Max is out. Um, and if you'd like to say any of the little special things it sure. offers. Sure, yeah. We've been, uh, obviously, it's got uh, Chaos Scatter has been uh, added to it. Uh, a big thing that a lot of people are very interested in is our uh, our cloud procedural cloud system that's been added to our Sky system. Uh, this is actually a direct uh, directly based on our merger with um, uh, Enscape. And so these are... Uh, uh, part of that process, and that's become a big, uh, big fan favorite apparently, which is very exciting. Uh, V-Ray Cal uh, decal for this, uh, the, uh, for displacements, and uh, we also have um, uh, V-Ray proxies uh, now support hierarchies. Uh, and this is uh, again for 3ds Max, but all the other products will be coming very soon. So just uh, be on the lookout for those as they get announced. A uh, couple of events going on, Kristen. What's going on? Yeah, so you can find these out at chaos.com slash events, but the first one will be August 25th, so this week. Um, it's going to be episode six of the Chaos Campus live show. Um, they're going to discuss uh, kind of the power of personal project and uh, tips on how to feed your inner artist and diversify your skill set. Um, so tune into that August 25th, and then the next one is September 8th and 9th. It is 24 Hours of Chaos, which is coming back for the third year. Um, it is 24 hours hours uh 12 shows that are back to back so each shows two hours um and we're just like uh unite 3d artists designers arcviz animation gaming vfx all over the world um in one amazing event so definitely tune into that to check it out Yep, and and as 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 Chris was saying, this is an event that goes around the globe over a 24-hour period uh so it is kind of fun uh to be part of that 
I love doing it every year. Uh, I uh, was uh, just when I when we first talked about it, we said there's no way this is going to work, and it totally works, and it's really great and a lot of fun. And some people do stay up all 24 hours, so good good luck. Maybe you'll be one of those people. All right. Yeah. Uh, okay. If people want to know more about the podcast, uh, where can they go? You can go to facebook.com slash podcast or chaos.com slash cggarage. And if you'd like to watch us, go to youtube.com slash chaosgrouptv. Perfect. And if you guys have any other ideas or uh, hints about the uh, or, or suggestions for the show or guests you'd like to have on, uh, email us labs at chaos.com. And I do want to mention something actually based on labs. Uh, I just uh, put out an article, uh, a labs article on our blog section. You guys should check it out. It's uh, I've been spending the last couple of years on developing a um, some some new ideas in terms of virtual production. And I had a, uh, basically I've been working on a virtual camera system using Unreal, uh, V-Ray for Unreal, and live linking it to Vantage. And I talk all about it in the blog post. So go check it out and go to our blog section at chaos.com and check out uh, the article I wrote about virtual production. But for now, please enjoy episode number 389 with Mike Romy. Welcome to another CG Garage where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're going to fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. So can you believe it, Mike? I think we were still in the double-digit podcast numbers when you were on the podcast last time. We're now getting close to 400 episodes. And so that means it's been many years since we've talked. <laughs> it might have even been a single digit. I, I think you were just starting it. I was just starting. It might have been just a single digit. It's been a long, long, long time. Uh, but it's been really exciting. And I don't know, did we ever go through your little origin story or, or never no, did? I, yeah, I think we were talking about some other stuff. I think we did an April Fool's Day trick on yes. like, some like real-time GPU-based rendering stuff. No, it was UV Ray, remember? Yes. <laughs> I think I got it was with because I wanted to get on that video that you guys did with the um, where you did all the the heist, and I was like, oh, I right. want to participate in that. Yes. Yeah, we did UV Ray. It was a Mike Seymour FX Guide uh, April Fool's thing. That's yeah, right. That was fun. That's right. Okay. Well, now it's our opportunity to finally get to the origin story of Mike right. Romy. So what, what got you interested in computer graphics? Uh, gosh, I, I have to start at the very beginning, don't I? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of interesting, the kind of the, the path you weave. I, I started in high school doing, you know, drafting. I mean, like, you know, hardcore, like drafting table, pencils, rapidograph pens, um, I started going to school at um, Art Center. I was doing these high school programs to learn graphic design. I thought I was going to be a car designer, but then I went and did graphic design. Mm -hmm. and I started, you know, I went to school to study graphic design, and I had like a really strong technical illustration background, right? I was doing all these like really, you know, complicated, you know, exploded views of cars and phantom views of all the pieces and you know doing these state you know drafting programs so i really had this dimensional experience but it was very traditional illustration airbrush 
you know, pens and whatnot, started right. school and needed a computer for school. Got my, you know, one of my first Macs then. It was like a power, power Mac, something 7,500 or 750 or something like that. What year was this approximately? 1994. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And started, you know, got my, my uncle gave me, he's like, look, I, I want you to make a commercial for me. I'm like, excuse me. He's like, yeah, you got computers. You can do nonlinear editing. I want you to make a commercial. He was a lawyer and he's like, he's like, I want to do this regional commercial in like big bear. And he's like, I'll help you get some of the equipment. Um, but you got to do it. So I was like, okay. So I got Stratus studio pro. Um, I got Adobe premiere. I got a radius video vision. I came to school with like this computer that like no student had at the time. It was like a full blown, like nonlinear editing computer, you know, right. <laughs> and, uh, I helped him build a commercial. Um, I learned Strata studio pro. I think back then there was this game. What was the game that they made with Strata studio pro mist? Right? Mist. Yeah. Yeah. Mist was with, Mist was with, was. uh, 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 mental Ray, wasn't it? Soft image was a second version, but the original mist, I think okay. it, was, it was Strata. Um, got exposed to Form Z, um, electric image in college, um, mm -hmm. on my own accord because I went to school to study graphic design and they didn't know anything about 3D at the time. Right. Um, and uh, went to That was college. around the time of Infinity. Remember that one too? Oh, yeah, I had Infinity. <laughs> I had, I had you know, a, a cracked version of electric image at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, what else did I had? I had Adobe 3D. I think it was like this text font, you know, 3D thing. Yes. Um, anyways, uh, went to school, studied graphic design, but kind of was passionate about 3D stuff. Right. Um, and um, so I, I remember it was like a, this is a really fun story. I was, it was like a second or third year of college. I went to like one of the early E3 conferences, you know, that mm -hmm. gaming conference. And I um, was walking the, you know, the, the floor and I went up to, you know, listen into somebody, talk to somebody else. I, I was kind of butting into some conversation sure. and I was just listening in and the gentleman's like, yeah, we're going to start a game company. You know, we, we decided to leave Rhythm and Hughes. Um, we're going to start this game company in San Luis Obispo. It's called Offworld. I'm like, I'm like, and I just went in there. I'm like, gave my hand. I'm like, I am Mike Romy. I, right. I go to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Um, right. And um, it turns out the gentleman's name was um, Lauren Lanning. And he was a creative director at Rhythm and Hughes with a, okay. another lady called Sh Sherry McKenna. And mm -hmm. they started a, a game company in San Luis Obispo. I think at the okay. time he gave me a card that it was called Offworld. And then uh -huh. later on, they renamed it called to Odd World, and it ended up being <gasps> a game called yes. Abe's Odyssey. Yes, that's a great game. Yeah, yeah. So I interned, you know, there, which really was just kind of helping out doing stuff. But really, like my hope was like, I want to get on those SGI impacts. I want to use Power Animator and Alias. You know, mm -hmm. I want to learn all that stuff. So like late at night, they let me kind of you know, run around on the, on the impacts if they weren't busy, you know, learning mm -hmm. how to model and power animator and alias. Um, nice. and so I kind of got my teeth pretty deep into that 
so much so I, I convinced my parents that they sent me to a state school. So they kind of could afford college for me, which was great. And I'm like, look, I appreciate everything you did for me, but I want to go into debt. I want to buy an SGI 2 and an alias power animator. Are you serious? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like the only like student who had like an SGI 2 a power animate power animator. I had two Macs in my, you know, in my, in my apartment. You know, I had a 9,500 at the time. I had this old 7,500. Wow. I, I was just blowing, you know, and I had a part-time job on top of the internship um, because the summer before I went to school, I started working for this company called Data. Um, uh, what is it called? I forgot what it's called. Um, it's a company from, uh, from Hitachi that made these laser printers. And so I was doing all these illustrative like PowerPoint dry diagrams for the, the president of the, of this group. Um, and he, um, he's like, you know, do you want to keep doing some of these illustrations for me? They're really great. They help me with these presentations. I'll pay you while you're at school. And so I had like, had this big giant, you know, 11 by 17 laser printer as well in my room as well. <laughs> and, and he ended up asking me to do like this interactive CD-ROM as well. So I was literally modeling all the printers in like Form Z, rendering it in Strata Studio Pro while I was doing design work. And then I, 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 they even gave me a budget to hire like other students to help me, you know, with director and build like this interactive CD-ROM where you could like open up the printer, you know, add paper, replace the drum. It was, wow. it was great. It bankrolled all my CG, you know, efforts in college. <laughs> right. That's impressive. Uh, yeah. That's impressive. And um, what had happened was um, at, at, at some point I was kind of farther ahead than the, than the professors were. And they'd gotten mm -hmm. a grant to uh, teach a class in 3D. The, the grant was a joint grant between the architecture program and the design department. And they're like, well... The head of the, the department, the design department, is like, Mike, you, you already know Form Z, and they're teaching Form Z in the architecture department. And, um, and you know Electric Image, you know, and you have a lot of context in there because I was doing, like, these trade shows for Electric Image at, like, NAB in mm -hmm. college. And they're like, you know, would you help us put together a program? Um, and I had another friend, Mike Rosenbrock, and we put together, helped them put together a program to teach um, computer animation, where we kind of paired up like an architecture student who knowed, who understood dimensionality and how to build something dimensionally with like right. a creative person to come up to the story. And they had a quarter to put together, you know, an entire, you know, animation, you know, segment. I called all the people I knew at the time, like I knew uh, Karen Ross. I don't know if you know Karen, but she works in the yeah. industry doing marketing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and I begged her, I'm like, could you give us licenses of electric image, please? And right. she gave, you know, the school, like a bunch of licenses for electric image. So I started with Mike um, helping the head of the department teach a program in computer animation really early using electric image and form Z. Wow. Wow. Which, and you were yeah. still a student? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It took my four <laughs> years and it made it five. Okay. All right. <laughs> but you were busy yeah. starting curriculums. So. Yeah. But what, when it was close to graduation time, the thing that was kind of cool was they had like a budget to bring people in to speak. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, okay, well, you know, you want to help us find people? I'm like, yeah, 
Can I, right. do I have a budget to take them out, you know, for, for food, you know, take them out right. to drink? Do you He's like, yeah, yeah, find, find people you want. So I'm like, well, great. I'm going to use this to find my, my job out of school. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I ended up inviting two people to come speak to the school. Um, I, you know, and they were both people that I was interested in working for upon graduation. One was a gentleman named Corey Jones. He kind of set up a uh, kind of a motion graphics studio um, called Reality Check Studios. And they were one of the first studios to kind of use electric image and Form Z. Mm -hmm. And then I, I made good friends with Alex Lindsay at the time, who was working at, um, uh, was it, what was the previous uh, operation that they had at the ranch? Um, Dan oh, from, right. Um, Jack Films, maybe? Uh, okay. I'm not sure which one it was, but they were doing, you know, some of this early you know, Star Wars, electric image, you know, previs. Didn't they become banned from the ranch after that? Banned from the ranch. That That's what it was. Yeah. So I, I invited both of them to come into Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is a beautiful town, and right. showed them around. And then they spoke. And then I kind of bridged that those relationships to see, you know, if there were career opportunities from there. And Alex brought me to the ranch to kind of see what it was like there. And Corey kind of, you know, gave me his kind of pitch to, to work at Reality Check Studios. So when I graduated, I kind of had some opportunities that I could pursue in both options, and it worked out pretty good. <laughs> nice. So which one did you take? <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, so you have to realize, like, I'm, I'm like this college student who has, like, you know, tons and tons of, like, computer software and experience, equipment, right? And I was buying it left and right. And I, I kind of, I picked working for Reality Check Studios over the ranch because I was like, I just didn't want to be a small fish in a big pond. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought I could be a big fish in a small pond. Mm -hmm. um, on top of that, some of the technical things that Reality Check was doing was really interesting. Um, at, right before I graduated, I'd helped you know, the summer before working with them. And um, they had uh, won a bid to do the graphics package for for CBS for the NFL. I guess CBS had won the NFL back. They had lost it for a number of years. And they were going to go on right. the air and they were going to go on really big. So we had done a design pitch uh, and I had helped you know, with that. And, and But the trick was is that they were going to buy... They were going to use some new technology to do the insert graphics packages. So instead okay. of using the traditional Chiron, right, they kind of said, well, we're going to buy seven of these SGI Onyxes that have these graphics engines. And right. there's this software from Norway um, called Peak Everest. Um, it's a real-time rendering, like an OpenGL renderer, like Unreal. And we're going, to, you're get, we're going to use that to build the graphics package to do all the insert graphics. And, and it uses like a kind of a, a MySQL database, you know, and a Delphi entr entrance to kind of build the interface to cue the graphics to come on the screen and come off the screen. So I got kind of excited. I'm like, great, I'm going to have access to these $250,000, you know, SGI Onyxes <laughs> instead of these 40,000 impacts. Right. Uh, and uh, right out of school, I just started, jumped right in to help with a lot of that work. Um, actually, I take it back. I, my timing's a little bit. I did that the year before I graduated with them. So okay. helped build that package. 
Um, and it, what got me intrigued was the idea of rendering in real time, right? Right. And at the time, real time rendering, you know, OpenGL Very was pretty expensive. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And graphics cards weren't, you know, I'd say that graphics mm -hmm. cards then were like the modern day NVIDIA cards, right? And they released. Well, that was the thing that was interesting, right? It was those, when, when those, those first NVIDIA cards, remember they were called a Riva card or something like that that came out? It was the first sort of. Gra graphics card that nvidia made and that was like it had OpenGL built into it yeah. which was like you mean i buy this 200 dollars card and it's equivalent graphics to this forty thousand dollar sgi and that's what killed it that's what killed sgi yeah. man we would get yeah because it was cbs and they had this like super like you know support contract they would drop mm -hmm. off these fifty thousand dollar graphics cards that were like two feet by two feet and when mm -hmm. when the machines you know, literally froze or they fried the board. We slide another one in and that was, you know, <laughs> the prerequisite to like, you know, the SGI Onyx, or, right. or sorry, the NVIDIA, you know, cards. Um, right. So started working for them and yep. doing a lot of work in this, you know, real time, you know, graphics arena. It, it ended up becoming a company called VizRT, which is still around today. Mm -hmm. um, and they, when I, I, um, when I graduated, my mom's like, you need to get a job, go find a job. And, okay. and she's like, um, and you can't stay at home very long, right? You gotta find something. So I literally called up you know, a family friend who had an apartment in West Hollywood. And I said, do you have any room, any, any space in the apartment building? And she's like, yeah. So literally like I came home and like two days later, I told my mom, I'm like, you know your friend Candy who has that apartment building? I, I, I'm gonna stay there. And your mom was like, I told you to, to leave the house. I wanted you to stay a little bit longer. Right. And, and immediately upon graduation, I had an apartment building in West Hollywood. I was working on Melrose and Cahuenga. And two weeks into like the summer when I you know, started, um, they're like, we got this big project in New York. Do you want to go for a few weeks? I'm like, okay, sure. Right. So they're like, okay. So I packed my bags thinking it was going to be two weeks and mm -hmm. long and short, that trip ended up being two years of, of a lot of neat experiences. Um, but the project right. that they sent me to New York to help on was obviously to help with this CBS Sports Center using this, the VizRT system. But it ended mm -hmm. up being also to kind of help with the Natural History Museum. They had the Planetarium Space Show there where they bought mm. like an eight pipe onyx. So instead of eight, instead of these mini fridges that we were using that were SGI onyxes, they had eight full-size refrigerators that all had right. graphics engines that were all packaged, you know, up with a, you know, a, um, a barcode projector. And they were building this dome like Epcot and it had 350 mm. seats and rumblers. And they were building a version of VizRT that was a multi-pipe engine that could basically render and blend in real time, you know, 60 frames per second with eight, you know, I think it was a seven pipe Onyx, but they had eight digital disc recorders that could record what you, what you rendered in real time. And you could use right. a video feed as a video input. It was just crazy stuff. Wow. <laughs> and wow. we would work like it was a construction site. So you couldn't actually like go in to the construction site till they were done doing construction for the day. So around four o'clock, 
we go in and work till about two in the morning, then come back the next day in the morning at, at, to the office and we, we set up this mini dome system where we took two of the SGOnixes from CBS and we made one send the video feed out and I made another one simulate the dome where I modeled the dome with UVs where it would take okay. the real-time rendering of one and feed it to the UVs of the other one so I could simulate what it would be like in the dome before we had access to the dome later in that day. <laughs> wow. It was pretty, wow. pretty like, um, I say, you know, digital cowboy-esque. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty neat. It ended up, you know, leading to, you know, some other neat projects there. We did like a, um, a few years into it after we did some Super Bowls um, and we did um, even put a, a network on the air in Italy, uh, in Milan for Sky Italia. They had been approached by, um, a comp- by Morgan Stanley. They said, we, we're building this new um, high rise in New York City. I'm like, oh, interesting. And they're like, well, do you know much about, you know, Times Square? And like, no, tell, tell us, tell us more about Times Square. And they're like, well, mm-hmm. they, you know, during the 80s, it wasn't safe in New York City. So um, uh, there was this city ordinance passed where your occupancy of your building on Times Square had to emit a certain amount of light based off of the size and volume of your space. So if you had, if you had a high rise, right, you had mm-hmm. to you know, wrap the entire building with, you know, LED signs or something, right? Right. So the, um, the architect had, well, they, they found this parking lot. They already had one office on Times Square, but they wanted to build a flagship building on Times Square. So are you talking um, about number four, no, are you talking about number four Times Square? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Right. More Madison. <laughs> yeah. So well, uh, I was on Times Square for for Morgan Stanley. Right, it's the one that has the LED walls that go around, right? Well, before that, they had the one that was across the street, right? And the one that it has the LED wrapped around it was a parking lot. Right. So they basically bought the parking lot, and they're gonna like we're gonna build this big giant high rise, and because we have to have these city ordinances, the architect kind of feathered around the side of the building this LED screen. That was basically like three HD signals around the side of the building. And mm-hmm. they're like, and we have to put graphics on it. It runs 24 hours a day. Um, and they mm-hmm. talked to the, you know, the natural history of planetarium. And they're like, oh, that's great what you guys did with a real-time rendering with, with VizRT. Maybe we could do that on this building. So they bought an Onyx 3000, which was like the last like refrigerators that they ever made. Um, yeah. And it was a three-pipe onyx. So it was three of these full-size refrigerators that all kind of um, wrapped around the side of this building. And they're like, help, you know, Reality Check will do the, you know, the, the production work for the, for the graphics package. The other part of the graphics package, the design portion was kind of awarded to, uh, what's the name of the company? It's been a while. Um, Where's the cat? You know the cat and the fiddle in 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 Hollywood. Mm-hmm. In Hollywood, what's the, yep. What's the visual effects? The motion oh, graphic? what were they called? It was a graphic company there. Yeah, now I'm trying to. I'm uh, K something. Is it K? Uh, I don't think so. No, 
Anyways, they had won the design package. We were responsible for the production package. And they put us in Riot Manhattan's office to do all the production work to build the graphics for the show, for this, for this sign of this building. And really, so I was working, by the way, I was working at the, as an intern at the architecture company that was doing that building at that time. Awesome. That's so, <laughs> it's such a small world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was, it was Fox and Fowl architects is what it was. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, okay, we need you to build a 20. We've got to design some of these vignettes that are going to wrap around the building. Um, we're going to use VizRT. They wanted to do it very procedurally. Think of it like Houdini, right? Okay. Procedurally building graphics packages that were loosely themed to Morgan Stanley with video coming in, video coming out. Very procedural, dynamic. And so I built, you know, kind of a, a to some of their design specifications, the these templates of scenes that would run in real time. And they were building like a show control system at VizRT. And they had the core of it done, but they didn't really have the um, the, the front end. So I was literally writing like XML code to build a 24 hour show graphics package to say, cast, you know, load up this grayscale image to offset the rotations of all these blocks, then start the animation to cascade them going down, you know, downtown in the morning and then cascade them going upstream, you know, later in the day and building like this 24 hour, you know, graphics programming really more than anything, a right. 24 hour graphics package for the side of the building right and then wow that's pretty over. impressive yeah it never took off though what would have we gotten to the point where we were like ready to be live and then september 11th happened and it changed right. everything for us so right. morgan stanley was heavily impacted by a loss of some of the employees and um you know I, they they determined it's probably not a good idea to have two high rises in times square at the same time so they ended up selling the high rise to um, to Lehman Brothers, and right, you know how that happened. What happened with that? Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. So. All right. And All you right. were still so you were still in New York. So so how, you said you said you spent two years there. So where did you go from yeah. there? <laughs> so that was fun, and my wife was doing her in her graduate school. She finished her graduate school. I told her to come out to New York, live with me for a little bit. And then everything turned upside down. Our biggest client was CBS at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, right after the trade towers um, fell, um, we kind of focused a lot of our efforts on the CBS related work. I don't know, mm -hmm. again, it's weird times we live in, um, but right at that exact same time, they had the, um, what was that thing that they were, um, the poison that was being sent around as powder inside of- Oh, poison? anthrax. Anthrax, there was the anthrax scare. And Dan yeah, Rather's right. office was right across the hallway from sports set, from the sports, you know, sport part of CBS. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't, I don't know that I've, I think I'm not cut out for, for New York anymore. Right. Um, so I came home um, and got married. <laughs> nice. Uh, you know, did a, a little bit more of my time in my at, at Reality Check, um, but after a while, it, you kind of kind of keep building the same you know thing over and over again, the same sure. wheel. And I wanted something different, and I wasn't sure whether my you know my story was meant to be a creative story or to be a technical story, right? Right. Because 
I went to school to be a designer. <laughs> you know, I, I understood creative intent and, and um, I, I ended up spending so much time doing stuff that was really technical that I was like, oh, well, maybe I should really go to be an art director because kind of that's what I went to school to, to kind of pursue. I think that's right. where I met your wife too. At, uh, yeah, at New Wave. At New Wave, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why I first so, met you, I think. I think and so, that yeah. was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, what, 20? 20 years, years ago, ago? Yeah. yeah. And um, it was, they had a small little motion graphics group. Um, mm-hmm. It was fun. It was, it was a lot less challenging than the, than the technical, you know, challenges of managing an SGI Onyx and these alpha software. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, I think I did okay, you know. But I think that pendulum had swung too far over to the technical side that I just had that appetite to get back into the technical stuff. Um, right, right, right. And um, so I found my way into doing CG supervision. Um, okay. Started at a little shop called Engine Room. Um, yeah. With Andrew Honecker um, mm-hmm. at the time and uh, Stephen Chu. I, I, you know Stephen, don't you? I don't. I- do yeah, I? I don't think so. Yeah, I he's probably. A, he's a shotgun guy who's been there for a long time at shop. Oh, right. Shotgun. Anyhow, mm-hmm. we, we were doing, you know, I was doing a lot of like software development, you know, to help t- TD work, right? We were building, you know, sure. render submitters to, to, was it Smedge or was it, um, I don't think it was Smedge at the time. Maybe it was, but we were doing, Rush. We were doing render submitters. Rush. It was Rush too. We started with Smedge mm-hmm. at Mustard and then went to Rush. Okay. And, um, yeah, writing submitters, you know, submitters to solve things, doing a lot of fluid simulations and solving real flow simulations on the farm. Um, right. And I think um, Andrew just finished working on The Wild. It's like a movie that was done in Canada, mm-hmm. Toronto with, I think, um, he was a director. He was an old ex ILM guy. There for a long time, he animated the um, the T Rexes, um, didn't he? Um, any, uh, are you talking about Tippet? No, not Tippet. Close. Um, the CG stuff. He did a lot of the CG stuff. He's got a he's got a nickname. Spaz uh, Williams. Spaz. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> they were. At, I know Spaz. Yeah, they were at Core and working with Spaz on the Wild. And mm-hmm. um, I think that that's when Isaac and Don from Shotgun, it wasn't Shotgun at the time, came to him and said, let's build a production tracking system for the core. Right. And I guess it went pretty well. Um, and that was kind of the, you know, the start of Shotgun. And Andrew came into, you know, engine room, we're going to use this, stop using this FileMaker, stop using these Excel sheets, we're going to use Shotgun. Okay. And so I, I don't, you know, if you, you know a lot about my history now, it's my right. story, you know, is deep inside a shotgun. Sure. Now. And we were like the first or second studio outside of Core to start using it. I think right. it was like Leica and us. <laughs> right. Uh huh. You know, I, I guess I have an appetite for the bleeding edge, and, you know, you bleed when you're on the edge. <laughs> mm hmm. Oh, that's definitely you. That's definitely you. He would give you stuff that was definitely <laughs> do not use with caution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. So we try to do, you know, our, you know, our commercial work. 
you know, of all things, mm-hmm. not film, not long format. So you had no appetite for failure. Right. Um, they had an early API. So I started writing, you know, slinging some Python code to, you know, register, you know, shots and register, you know, versions in there and, you know, send jobs to the farm to transcode FFmpeg, you know, proxies and load them up. It was, it was, it was pretty wild. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was my, you know, my return to uh, CG related work. And it, it kind of led me to, to Zoic, which right. is quite a long story too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause that's, I mean, that's again, when I started running into you again is when you were at Zoic and you were working on a lot of technology there and you were really trying to push a lot of real time ray tracing and oh, yeah. doing a lot of the GPU ray tracing. And so that was something I was very much when I first started at Chaos, that's what I was that's what I was focusing on myself too. When I got there, they kind of had it, different iterations of the pipeline that had failed or succeed. They and they said, you know, you're, you're, you do you're, and I was doing a lot of like um, FX TD work, you know, blowing up mm-hmm. streets and cars and things and whatnot. I think before I got there, they even had an early version of V-Ray for Maya, and they did a demo demo, you know, for a while of it. It was too early um, and they started kind of pivoted to mental ray and they kind of asked me to start working on the pipeline. And that's when my kind of, I guess I kind of started to veer off. It depends how you look at it. Um, veer deep into, you know, real time rendering uh, or veer off of, you know, rendering into business intelligence. Um, so right. it started with, you know, we should use shotgun <laughs> and then right. we should build, you know, a better interface to, to rush. We should, we should right. make an interface that's really, you know, intelligence to, to see what's rendering. Um, you know, I, I, you get, I tell this story to a lot of people, but I think that was the, one of these origin stories. You know the movie Speed, where you have like Keanu Reeves at the end of the movie and they're doing circle eights in the middle of the airport on right. a bus, it's like a jalopy. Mm-hmm. And then they bring up this other bus that looks like a nice, you know, really expensive bus. And they put like a drawbridge in and they save all the hostages. Right. That was what it was. It was like the buses were the pipeline. They had the old pipeline. They had the new pipeline. I couldn't interfere with the pipeline. And I had to save the hostages to move on <laughs> to the new pipeline. So we literally used a render submitter for Rush to basically just feed the database with everything. Your projects, your episodes, your tasks. You send a job to the farm and magically inside a shotgun without anyone using shotgun at the time, it started to kind of feed the machine. And then when we got right. to a certain point, you know, the CFO was like, can you build a time card system? I'm like, what? I, okay. And okay. he's like, I want to be able to do actualization and, and from our bids and our work. And so ended up really getting deep into pipeline related stuff. And, you know, this pitch and pull between like business intelligence inside of visual effects and the creative intent. Right, because obviously at the time we were starting to use mental ray, trying to do these render buffers, which were poorly documented at the time, trying to right. build back to beauty, um, and we kept, you know, getting awarded these shows where the shot counts would grow like really, really big. It started right. like you know fifty shots for the CSI movie TV show, and then it, magically we started doing like. Okay, we have this show called V, and it's 150 shots. And then we have the show called Once Upon a Time, and it's 300 shots. And it was right. a constant pull of like, well, we don't have a big enough render farm. 
we got to find a better way to render this stuff in real time. It led to a lot of things, and we can go down those rabbit holes. Some of them were right. how do we get you know faster renders, i.e., exploring like Mock Studio and even you know working with Lado, you know, on early iterations of the GPU render uh, to like what I would consider the the prerequisite to the modern day virtual production. How do you render in real time on set and finish on set? Um, right. So, Take, you can go either way. You want to talk about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, that's something that I've been focusing on. Obviously, you know, that's what I did with Kevin, and then yeah, we're talking to you about it as well as to seeing how much we want to push the envelope on take take production rendering, not just you know rasterized rendering. Take production ray tracing and see how fast we can make it to the point where it's a WYSIWYG experience. You know, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, we had real world problems at the time. Like we we had kind of done the show called V, where we did the pilot. Is very mm -hmm. I, you, I think you even met with Andrew, but it was done in a very like traditional sense, like green balls and sticks and tracking after the fact. Mm -hmm. uh, we found a company called Previs uh, Lightcraft uh, by a gentleman named Elliot Mack, who had kind of was one of the prerequisites to virtual productions and. He's, Yep. Went out on a limb and said, let's try to make this production ready. And it was not production ready at the time. Right. <laughs> so it meant like setting up a stage with all of these targets, fiducials, you know, going out there with survey equipment and surveying all the fiducials to build a constellation and then sending the constellation to this little like, you know, IMU type um, witness camera to do a real-time tracking of the camera in that space. And then he yep. was trying to catch up, trying to do, you know, near real-time rendering and live chroma keying and, you know, and then, and then if you were lucky to actually get tracking to be stable and you could get, you know, a live composite, then the hope and the wish was that you could record each take and the tracking data. And in, after the show was, uh, you know, finished uh, production, and they had two feeds, like the, the green screen feed and the, I just call it like the the garbage comp. You know, it was mm -hmm. like a, supposed to be the final comp, but it looked pretty good at the time, and it required sure. us to build, you know, pre baked models that all had the textures pre lit, and we made it look as good as we could. Um, right. And but the real benefit to all that was that we would move into. Uh, post-production a lot quicker because they'd see the shots and decide what the virtual space would look like long before they had to commit to them. Um, and so what would happen is, is, you know, a show that might have a small shot count became a show that had a lot of shot counts. And we had to find a way to kind of salvage the tracking data that we had on set. Um, so I ended up building a pipeline to kind of take the EDL that we got from the from our client, pair it with the FBXs that had time code embedded in it, pair it with the raw plate that was shot from camera, as well as the temp comp, and basically build, you know, a Miocene that had the tracking data, you know, 80 to 90% ready for production. And, right. and the hope was that we would front load the asset building before we got on set. We were using V-Ray at the time to pre-light and pre-bake and pre-texture you know, pre all the assets and then send it to the farm and bake it with all these different variations of resolution. 
you know, so that we wouldn't fill up the entire graphics card with all the memory. Um, and by the time we got the stuff back, we had we had built all these Python scripts and code to kind of reassemble all the camera tracking data, and we'd run these like camera sims that would basically do the lighting solves, where we'd cache out the lighting solves in all the you know camera locations, so that when we went to do the V-Ray rendering, we already had the lighting solve, and it took like you know, instead of a two hour render taking two hours, it'd take, you know, eight minutes to render the frame because we spent 24 hours doing some, you know, lighting solve. <laughs> right. And we got good at it to the point where we could, we'd get shows that would come in. Once Upon a Time was one of them where we'd have, you know, 200, 300 shots. Um, we had a whole bunch of Python code with shotgun kind of wrapped around it that would bring the plates online um, that would, you know, trim up the Maya scene, the FBX, to just the, the times of, the, um, of each cut from the EDL. Yeah. We even go so far, to, we even wrote like a, had an intern who became one of the smartest employees I've ever worked with. Sarah, she wrote a plugin that was like uh, an image plane plugin, you know, the Maya image plane plugin, but we wanted to have yeah. a chroma gear built into it. So we had a chroma keyer built into that, you know, that that image plane, so that we could just, you know, breeze through the shots, and you could give these to the CG lighting artists, so they could kind of see, you know, the image plane with a proxy with a chroma key, and then see the background. And we would we were doing 200, 300 shots every two two and a half three weeks. It was crazy stuff. That is crazy. That it's is crazy. crazy. But it's really impressive, and I think you know the thing that I, that I, that I took away from this, and something that you and I were discussing back even way back then, is that if you were you enabled filmmakers to see what they were going to get much sooner than they had done in the past, yeah. and even if it wasn't exactly what they were going to do, they it it removed that layer of. I don't know. I'll see it later, and then we'll have to wait. You know, so seventy-five percent of the decisions were made on set, and yeah. so you don't. You probably went through one or two versions of lighting at most, right? Yeah. Because it was all figured out. <laughs> yeah, it got to the point where we had such a deep bench of all these. We had shows that were reoccurring, and it got mm -hmm. so like you know this appetite to give the client the ability to see things became so prevalent that we started building an iOS app that was basically a digital backlot, yep. you know, uh, library where you could load the, all the assets for the, all the seasons. Um, and I kind of ran, you know, Sarah was one of the lead developers on that where we kind of built this Unity app at the time where it could load up, you know, a Unity asset inside of it and you could frame a shot, you could you could measure a distance. You had an IMU from the, uh, the iPad. You had blocking. You had lenses, and we could even send the data to Previs to load up. You know, the camera blocking director could take it out to set and load up an asset and say, "Here's what you would see if you look over there," or "Here's what you would see if you look over there." Yeah, that's um, awesome. The catch, though, this is really the catch at the time was, how do you retrain? visual effects artists to be game artists, right? Because all the develop, all the artists were all very much, you know, put more picks, po polygons on the problem, round the corners. It doesn't really mm -hmm. translate well into real-time rendering and it certainly doesn't translate well to a mobile app that has a footprint that's, you know, totally like a, 
tenth of the size of your graphics card. Right. Um, so we ended up writing some really slick tools like, okay, we were using V-Ray, we're using Maya, we've lit the scene. We ended up writing tools that would send jobs to the farm to bake out, you know, all the variation, all the lighting elements <laughs> um, as textures, make, you know, 10 different versions, you know, one at 256, one at 512, one at 1024. And then we had the, a, a visualization where you could kind of, you know, arrow up or arrow down the texture and it would tell you the size of your memory footprint. And right. then when you were done, you could send that scene to the farm and it would basically open up Unity, translate that scene into Unity asset, upload it to a cloud provider, like that was this is before S3, where that right. asset would live in you know, the equivalent of an S3 bucket. And then we mm -hmm. had to program Unity to pull at runtime on an iOS app, that asset to load it, right? So wow. that you could load it at runtime. And it was crazy. It was it's pretty slick stuff. Really, weird. yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I mean, it's basically a, a virtual art department program. Is yeah. what you wrote. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. amazing. It got even crazier. Yeah. Um, I think at the time there was an algorithm called Slam. Have you heard of like, like Slam tracking? I think I have. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's basically the idea is that you have you know uh, these cam a camera that a witness camera and it's tracking you know artifacts and and you know um, high contrast areas and it literally can dynamically solve a camera on the fly and right. i found this slam algorithm that i um i was like well why don't we make an iphone app that we could pair with our ipad app and the ipad app would use the phone's camera the phone's gpu we'd track where the camera is and we'd have not just the orientation of the camera but the position of the camera in the space and then we'd have a live feed through like a UDP port to the iOS app and that would track it. And so we had these like camera rigs where we had two pistol grips, an iPad in the middle and an iPhone up that was looking up, that was literally making tracking data, streaming the tracking data into the iPhone That's app. Right. I remember this thing you built, yeah. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and now, now there's LiDAR built into your phone. Into your <laughs> it's, yeah. It, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Also, a, a neat story about that kind of that pipeline, that virtual production pipeline that we built, you know, early virtual production. Um, you know, I mentioned, I don't know if you picked up on it, but I mentioned a lot of these scripts that we wrote in Python were all to prep a scene, like for this type of virtual production work. Sure. Like yeah. literally, like, you know, parse, you know, an EDL and send jobs to the farm to FFmpeg them. And um, Bruno from the foundry came to me, he's like, at one of these SIG graphs, he's like, I got something to show you. I'm like, what? He's like, I got this, you know, I know you don't like Avid because you can't automate anything in there. Adobe Premiere didn't have any scripting language and no one's gonna learn JavaScript, you know, that are mm -hmm. basically, you know, you really need Python in there. It's like, we got this thing called Hero. Like, what is it? He's like, think of it as the nonlinear version, nonlinear editor version, you know, that can do all the image processing using Nuke, um, but it's a nonlinear, nonlinear timeline. I'm like, great, send it my way. And we literally like this alpha versions. We literally retooled all of these automation scripts for this pipeline into using like an early alpha version of Hero. Um, and yeah. that's when I, 
that's when it was a long time ago. And I was like, wouldn't it be great if I had a channel and the channel had a chroma key and I had a GPU chroma key and then I had another channel that was like, you know, uh, this, is, this is kind of me talking to them and, and another channel that was like, you know, could drive Unity or Unreal or a real-time engine underneath it. And when you move the timeline, you know, uh, we had, you know, embedded metadata that would tell you what the camera position was and what the lens is, and it would tell what to render. And I, I started begging, you know, Vlado, I'm like, you know, you know, when we render these EXRs, you already have the metadata in there. You should pick like, you know, th these, these uh, there was, I found this uh, telemetry format in, um, Simpty from uh, um, from um, Elliot, and it basically gave instructions like if you were building like a drone, right? Right. This is instruction, Simpty instructions to store where you are in the world, how you're oriented in the world, and what lens you're using in the world. And I said, we got to get all, and I think Elliot was on the pack too. We got to get all the field recorders to lace them with you know position data from these tracking systems we got and then you could have a timeline where you could just scrub and just re-render the background and change it on the fly it's happening now but it didn't happen then yeah 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 that's amazing that's amazing yeah. well that's so cool that's so cool so what so so you how long were you at zoic you were there quite a while weren't you nine years nine years nine years yeah it's a long time um and near the end, we were doing some neat stuff, like did some, you know, big, you know, big data uh, analytics stuff for, you know, some government agencies. You know, how do you visualize data semantically, semantically, temporally, geospatially? Started really, you know, exploring more WebStack stuff, right? You know, what is React? How does React work with WebStacks? You know, started using Unity as a, kind of a plug-in to render, you know, in a browser. Um, right. You know, looking at data, how do you look at a lot of data? Because I'm talking a lot about my CG experience, but you have to realize in my time at, at Zoic, I had, you know, all these different personas. One was, you know, the CG stuff, but the mm -hmm. other one was kind of a data, you know, <clears throat> you know, really thinking about databases and schemas and how you store and manage data you know, to manage the business, not just, you know, the the pixels that you deliver. So um, got into that with them and started exploring things like Elasticsearch, something I knew nothing about at the time, right? right. Um, which is a search engine, which is a kind of, it's based off of Lucerne. It's, it's you know, the common way that most search engines are kind of used today. And mm -hmm. what we found is, is that they were starting to kind of do... Um, I've never been exposed to it, right? We're in visual effects. We don't really need to know lat long positions of you know every pixel. But outside of our world, right, in the web web you know technology world, there's databases where they're storing lat long information on on all the entries in their database. And so I quickly got exposed to the notion that you could have a database entry that had a lat long. You could use something like Elasticsearch to do geospatial perimetering, <laughs> and you could tie that to something like Cesium um, or just Google Earth, and you could literally take somebody to that place in the Earth based off of a query and aggregate, like you know, 
how many people hate net, you know, like or dislike net neutrality. And you could you could literally take them to that place in the world where people had negative things to say about net neutrality. And we we're doing a lot of uh, visualizations and charting based off of some of that premise. It's kind of like, you know, you, you hear in the news, like today, geopolitical stuff and you, like the mules and there's 2000 mules and they're talking about, you know, how they're tracking cell phones and they're laced with, you know, their tracking data. It's basically like, how do you, how do databases, you know, correlate to places in the world where you're doing a query to find something? And, and then how do you take somebody to that place and show them, you know, a satellite view or something? So we were doing some of that uh, there. Mm. I don't know that that was my my calling, <laughs> you know. Right. <laughs> but um, it was really fun. Um, we got to go to Virginia. We got to meet with some, you know, the big, you know, agencies and right. flex uh, a bit. Um, and that's um, that's kind of the end of my that chapter at Zoic. Mm -hmm. um, led to a new chapter, which was kind of different. Um, yeah, I think it's when I kind of disappeared for a little bit from the industry. Um, sort I went, of. yeah, sort of, um, <laughs> I started working for Disney Imagineering yeah. um, and initially the, the, the ask and the request of that role was to kind of help them build a pipeline for their VFX discipline. They call them DAOs, disciplines of work. And mm -hmm. I came in there and they had, they had shotgun, but uh, I quickly learned that that shotgun instance was an on-prem instance. It had multiple tenants, so it wasn't being, you know, well managed. Um, so there was really a lot of technical debt to make their shotgun experience an improved experience for the visual effects department. Sure. Um, I got really exposed to large enterprises because it's different working for a big corporation like Disney, right? Yeah. And getting infrastructure in place that I, we could get into place at Zoic was a lot easier than anything you could ever do at Disney. So um, got paired with, you know, a DevOps team who helped stand up, you know, an instant, you know, clean up that instance for us, you know, um, right. scale that instance so that it had, you know, redundancy so that it was not like um, um, fragile. It would, you know, it would stay up. And if you publish two things and too many things, it didn't fall down. And we ended up kind of migrating their shotgun instance you know, on-prem in these VMwares all the way up to an AWS cloud instances and services. Um, okay. Which was even before Shotgun had, right? They gave us these Docker images of like, yeah, we're not even using AWS yet. And like, yeah, well, we're going we're gonna to basically make our own on-prem AWS instance of ShotGrid, you know, with scaled transcoding and processing and, you know, APIs. So I, I helped, you know, work through that effort, all the while trying to help build a pipeline for the VFX department. And um, we were, I was umbrellaed under the R&D group, uh, under John Snotty, and I reported directly to Bei Yang. And they're like, well, why don't we, we should talk about using the shotgun thing for scope management. I'm like, oh, what's scope management? Um, so just a background about Disney Imagineering. There's kind of three groups that kind of help build these attractions and rides. You have like a ride group and they build, you know, the ride vehicles and the ride paths, right? The things that, you know, the guests sit in that are that keep them safe. Um, there's an architecture group who's responsible for designing the building, the envelope, 
right? Mm -hmm. That the right vehicle needs to sit inside, right? And then there's a show group and their responsibility is to kind of decorate the ride and the envelope so that it's themed. And they said, we have this show, we have this new project that's getting going on called, you know, Star Wars Land. We called it Delos at the time. Yep. And it's, you know, this $2 billion project that's being built in two locations at once. And the show team, they, they kind of aren't digital yet. So we need to help them become more digital, right? They're tracking everything that they install in the facility in Excel. We really think there's a better way to do it. What do you think about trying it, trying to do it with ShotGrid? ShotGrid. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, let me understand this. We have three groups and inside of those groups, there's about collectively, there's 150 different, different disciplines, show lighting, theme mm -hmm. lighting, graphics, visual effects, um, audio, um, sh everything you can imagine under the sun that helps build these attractions. They all have physical assets that need to be tracked. And you want me to try to, you know, mold shotgun into a scope management system to help track the installation, the design, the acquisition, um, you know, the entire process of all these show elements, physical elements. Right. And Bay's like, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. And he's like, and I also want to do the digital assets too. I'm like, oh, of course, right? The visual effects, right? That projects on the screen. It's like, yeah, that that that's some of it, but some of it's also like the instructions to the animatronics or the instructions to the the ride vehicle. Shotgun was not really designed for this. <laughs> no, but but there was a there's kind of a plan here. So let's track all the physical assets, right? Uh -huh. Let's track all the digital assets. And that's when I got exposed to what BIM is, the building information model, right? Oh, God. Right. Yeah, well, we're going to do BIM. Is. We're going right. to use Revit, and we're going to build this model. We're going to stuff every piece of show element in that model you could ever imagine, right? right. Every right. every stormtrooper, every helmet on the shelf, every you know element, we're going to track it in there. So yep. we're going to... We're going to make this BIM model and we're going to save FBXs and we want to visualize the attraction, right? You come from visual effects. You know the idea of shot assembly, <laughs> but we don't, mm -hmm. we don't have shot assembly. What we need to do is we need to do ride show assembly. We want to assemble the ride, you know, nightly so that we can basically iterate, right, on the attraction. And better yet, we want to render it in real time on a game engine in a cave, or maybe we want to put somebody in a motion control vehicle with a virtual reality helmet, and we want to put them down the ride vehicle path. And you know all that data that you're putting in there that says, here's all the artifacts about you know, the model that was published or the ride path that was published. By the way, wouldn't it be great if you could point to that thing, that thing and say, when does that install? When does that get delivered? Is that in the warehouse? How much did that cost? Imagine having an experience taking you through the attraction, not just taking you through what the creative intent was the attraction, but also helping you see the, the show scope. So I had these two juxtaposing, you know, um, scope to manage <laughs> um, mm -hmm. with different stakeholders, right? I had uh, a lady, her name was Mindy Wilson, and she managed all these coordinators who managed this scope list. You know, I need a hundred of this, I need a million of this, I need a thousand of this, here's the vendors we're gonna use. And she had this agenda to kind of focus on that. I had Bay, who had already kind of got the balls rolling on 
kind of visualizing this experience in Katana. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I had, you know, some partners in our team that were working on the Revit side of things where they were generating these FBX models that were totally like non-conducive for real-time rendering, right? Right. It, so it started with, we're going to build our own, you know, FBX exporter for Revit that's, you know, that deletes coplanar vertices, that, you know, um, is, initiates, you know, instances so that, you know, if I had a, a banister, it, I wasn't, I had one instance of a rail that got repeated over and over again. We're going to make a right. smart FBX so that there is actually a possibility that we could do frustrum culling in a, you know, unreal and we could render in real time, even though the BIM model was, took like forever to generate, right? right. If you just called it to the scene you're in, right? Maybe you could render in real time. <laughs> right. Um, and um, my two responsibilities ended up becoming, you know, a mountain of, uh, I think there needs to be more than one product owner managing this, right? Right. And so I kind of divested some of the, uh, the visualization parts of those aspects of that project um, and, and largely focused on this scope management. To me, that was kind of really the, that was really the kind of the, the golden project, right? Because really it wasn't just about Star Wars land. It was about every project using a unified tracking system, production tracking system, right? By the time I had, I'd been there for four years, we'd gotten almost all the future, you know, projects into the system. And you could answer that magic question, which was like, okay, are we sending too much work to one vendor? Because every single bit of scope was attached to which vendors were supplying that work. And we could actually right. determine the amount of scope that was being determined by all these vendors, whether they were show vendors that were doing media, you know, or whether they were building, you know, sconces and lights and, and, and all these things. It was pretty neat to be able to wow. build that system and a lot of pressure to build it right. And I, I think I was very transformative for me. Because I started, you know, in this scrappy Python, you know, environment that a lot of TDs start with, you know, it got into building, you know, more mature monolithic PySide apps for Zoic, like things that could submit jobs to farms, render and, and manage rendering and, and how you work in a DCC to, well, by the way, we're Disney, we don't really have a disk image, so don't expect a machine to be configured the way you want and all the things you know about doing software development, throw them out the door. You have to figure out how to develop with developers that are pipeline developers, but you have to think about it in a full web stack, right? And so um, I got this crazy idea. Uh, I thought it was unique at the time I learned it wasn't so unique, but it was cool at the time sure. that there's a great way for you at to, and I, I learned this technique from uh, from once upon a time where we were turning, you know, traditional CG art lighting artists into game artists, right? How do you make a workforce um, translate them into doing something that they they weren't necessarily trained to do, right? To be a game artist, you build these black boxes that send things out into the ether and return them back so that they're kind of configured, you know, appropriately for a game engine. Well, I had that same problem here. Was like. How do I make, you know, pipeline developers into full stack developers without having to have them worry about a full web stack? 
so I had this intern um, who's really smart. Um, and I asked him, I'm like, could you try to make me a, could you experiment with me for a few days? I want you to make, you know, a Python wrapper to React. Um, and I learned this from like Nuke, old TCL Nuke interface days, right? Where okay. I'm like, I want to, you know, a form, I want to input dialogue, input dialogue, input dialogue, and an OK cancel button. And I want the OK cancel button to kind of collect the values that you get from this form dialogue um, to send and run some Python. So I had him build me a little experiment where I had to sling very little like React code. I could describe a, a React interface, a form dialogue. The simplest part of, you know, a DCC application is how do you get data into the form? And I'm like, can you describe it as like a, a you know, a Python so I could make other developers build things? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> so right. we got into this act of like learning React, learning Material UI, which are all web stack things, you know, building a, a Docker image, again, stuff that you don't generally do in visual effects that could send up, set, that could kind of set up and configure it's like a DevOps work, um, a kind of a server who would take Python, JSON, basically JSON instructions via Python uh, to build a form. And so we went through every single component, like default value is this, you know, I want it to be an array and it needs to return values like this. And so we started building like dozens upon dozens of these interfaces you take for granted it inside of Maya or Nuke, right? Because you kind of have the environment comes when you install that package, right? But we wanted to build it on top of Shotgun and we wanted it to be available globally anywhere, right? It, whether it be Shanghai, whether it be Paris, uh, Florida, anywhere. And this is the way that I didn't have to worry about asking, you know, an IT department to install Python and getting them to, you know, give me permissions to put a protocol handler that executed Python that was really not secure, and so we built these really awesome tools that did things like cloud publishing, right? I have some artifact like an animation rig, right? And it produces some CSV data that tells how an animatronic needs to work. We built these forms where we could do, it was a cloud publisher where they could uh, upload that file, it'd go to kind of a temporary space, it validated, and then it would publish it into Shotgun and store it onto the file system. Right. And like, name it appropriately. So yeah. it was pretty cool. Um, it was really neat projects. That's a huge project, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the biggest one you've worked on? Um, I mean, it's yeah. even bigger than your iPad thing that you did it. So <laughs> Yeah, it, it definitely is bigger. It was the biggest at the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think what I'm doing now, now is a little bit bigger, but it's okay. more challenging. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll kind of tell you how I how I got to Fuse. <laughs> okay. Um, so the one of the project managers for Star Wars Land, her name was Jennifer Voigt. She she really was like one of these like when you have these like cheerleaders who are like really like do it. I'm in for it. Let's go. It. I'm all in. Right. Mm -hmm. She was all into what I was doing with Shotgrid. So it really helped push the narrative of what we were doing at Imagineering. Mm -hmm. And near the close of the Star Wars project, she um. She moved on to a different role at a different company. Um, she moved on to a role at um, uh, Madison Square Gardens, which was a pretty big, oh, right. a pretty big role. They were doing this Sphere project, and it was mm, uh, April of 2020. 
Yep. She's, you know, she's asked, she's like, would you consider coming here, right? And, and helping me do what you did to try and help you do what you did there, do that here. Because kind of what I'd done at Imagineering kind of got into a sustainment. They're talking about putting it into sustainment mode. They had, we had trainers who were training people to use it, right? I could mm -hmm. keep pushing that envelope. But at the end of the day, I think that they, they wanted to kind of move some of my expertise into focusing on other challenging problems there. And Jen asked me if I would, you know, was interested in it. And she's like, yeah, we have like, you know, this 20K dome that has LCD screens on the inside or LED screens on the inside and LED screens on the outside. We need to build a show system. We need to build a studio that could build production for this thing. And I, I, I took the bait. <laughs> right. I took the bait and went over there. And I think right, and right when like the first week I started was the week that all of COVID just hit the ground. And I was in New York visiting too. So I'd been in New York, you know, on two occasions during two major world catastrophes. One was 9-11 and one was the outbreak of COVID. Right. Wow. So um, I was there. I, I think I was, I know I was sick and I think I had COVID and I was in my apartment or my condo, not my condo, my um, hotel room there. Um, right. I just wanted to get home. Um, right. Oh, is is serendipitous or not? I don't. I don't know how you look at it, but really, you can assume that most of the amusement park entertainment industry kind of collapsed at that time, right? Disney's right. closed. Disneyland's never been closed. It's closed, right? Right. No one's going to Madison Square Gardens, and and we're not sure where this is going to lead to. Um, I got hired to build this big thing that I. I, I had a lot of experience on how to build it better, right. um, but Madison Square Gardens didn't, you know, they weren't sure where things were going and I wasn't given the resources to, to fly, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I couldn't, you know, I couldn't hire developers, um, Some a lot of political drama. Sure. Um, and, and, and rightfully for the time and, 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 you know, a lot of people kind of trying to figure out, you know, where things were going to go. Um, so I'm like, okay, well, if I can't hire a DevOps team and, and have these full stack developers, maybe I have to do that. Maybe I have to learn how to be a, you know, a full stack developer. Maybe I have to learn how to be a DevOps, you know, person, but I'm like, they're never going to give me a server. There's not even a rack room for me to put a server if I wanted one. Right. I literally, I, I naively took my credit card, took my credit card onto the, onto the computer opened up AWS, signed up for a, an account and figured out and, and, and learned some of these AWS services. One of them in particular is called Lambda. It, you know, in, in CG, we talk about, you know, cloud rendering, right? We're mm -hmm. going to spin up these EC2 instance and we're going to render. Does it have a GPU? Does it not? There's also this thing called Lambda and it's like ephemeral computing. It's like, I need to compute something but I only need 10 seconds of your time to compute it. And I only want to pay for 10 seconds. So I taught myself a little bit about Lambda and serverless and kind of hobbled together a prototype that could basically turn Shotgun into a cloud-based event tracking system. Meaning Shotgun has things like action menus or, or, or web hooks or cron services that do business intelligence like change field A needs to change field B, maybe a webhook gets triggered, an event gets triggered and it gets processed. 
you know, the status of this shop becomes, you know, the, the change the status of the of this task, things like that. So I wrote these little examples and I kind of I found that there was already a library that did this JSON, you know, to React um, thing that I thought I had largely kind of <laughs> invented. There was already a library, an open source library that did a lot of that. So wow. I basically wrote, you know, three different modules because I had a lot of time, right? Then we weren't sure where things were going. So I wrote, you know, one to manage actions and it would ephemerally, you know, build an interface. You know, there's no static, you know, HTML ever. It would literally ephemerally build, you know, on a Lambda, an interface in React, get your input. Um, maybe you upload a file and then it would translate that file. In this case, we were getting bids from vendors and it would translate the bid into tables in the database for bid items and bid versions. So we could do like scenario planning of different vendors and which one was the, you know, was the, was the best vendor to work with. And I was literally teaching myself how to use cloud services and kind of reinventing everything I knew about pipelines. Like pipelines are these things that are all locally hosted services, you know, and compute with Python and said, you know, no, no, it all has to be in the cloud. There's another way to do that. And kind of taught myself how to use some of these cloud services, you know, to do it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Um, didn't get too far given the nature of, you know, where everything was in the industry. Yeah. Um, but a colleague of an old colleague from Zoic knocked on my door, uh, Jason Fodder, mm -hmm. who's a CTO of Fuse. He's like, look, you know, we're, we're you know, we, we do all these visual effects. Um, we're one of the premier visual effects facilities in the, in the industry right now. We have a pipeline, it's aging. Um, we wanna transition from this pipeline that we built that's kind of bootstrapped on top of FileMaker and we wanna transition into Shotgun and you're kind of the expert at that. You know, is that something right. you'd be interested in? So, okay, well, uh, yeah, um, but I wanna do it my way. I wanna, I don't wanna, I don't wanna, I don't wanna reinvent the wheel the same way, I'm not. You know, I want to think about these things, you know, for global scale and, and reliability. I want to think about how you build something that, that, that can grow really, really large. She's like, great, because we have a private equity firm and that owns us now and we want to be global, too. And we're scaling our business. Right. Um, and so um, that brought me into a role where I kind of was responsible for helping move the pipeline, the production pipeline and the business intelligence pipeline. Uh, from, you know, a, a pretty rank and file pipeline, things that are done off of local services um, into, you know, um, a cloud services, SaaS products. Um, and my vision was to kind of do it on top of AWS. So I wanted to build a layer on top of all that stuff that allowed you to build every interface you could ever want. I could find all the entire pool of developers that our pipeline developers could be trained and, and could learn the acumen to build web apps, you know, through this abstraction layer um, on JSON. Um, I mean, I didn't need an entire army of full stack developers and I don't need an army of DevOps engineers, you know, staging up instances. We could do it all in AWS. That's kind of what I pitched to them. Um, and um, as quick as I started doing that, you know, 
it became, you know, kind of the same story with, you know, Zoic too is like, we want you to focus on production management, but we also have business intelligence. We have bidding systems, bid publishers and actualizing, and we have our own time card system. And we have this private equity firm that wants to look at our reporting and our charting data, big data analytics, you know, all the things that I learned at this, you know, the government agency, we need, we need to harness that too. Um, so I spent a year kind of focusing on both of those things, building up the pipeline um, to do that, um, tying it into a lot of systems. So it wasn't just like um, one of the things you hear when people talk about production tracking is like a source of truth, right? Um, single source of truth. You hear that a lot. Um, but a single source of truth, you know, in visual effects, you might say shotgun is a source of truth. But the reality is, is it's a source of truth to like the user, right? If you're an accounting department, Shotgun will never be your source of truth. NetSuite or your ADP system, your accounting system, that's your source of truth, right? So it really just depends. And the BIM model, right? I learned that at Imagineering. The BIM model, Shotgun will never be the source of truth for the AEC group that was building the BIM model. It's always the BIM model. The BIM right? model is the source of truth, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but the problem is, is it's the source of truth for the dimensional source of truth because getting all the metadata out of it is just a nonsensical bear to query, right? right? So when I got to Fuse, we have a lot of sources of truths, right? NetSuite, it's kind of a financial reporting types source of truths we were using. Domo, I don't know if you've heard of Tableau, but it's kind of like a, a chart. Oh, I know I've heard of Tableau. Yeah. Um, you have AD, a traditional visual effects pipeline has AD, right? This is your profile. You log in using AD. It's a source mm -hmm. of truth to who you are. We had, right. you know, these recruiting platforms, Taleo. So you had all these sources of truths. So I had to, I've been, we've been building, and we're still building, but it's getting really mature and it's really awesome. We're building a layer that sits on top of all this, you know, inside, uh, on top of AWS that basically can shepherd data in and out of these systems, syncing data from different databases, um, ephemerally, right? You know, our monthly charge on AWS is like 250 bucks, 500 bucks, right? That's a really? lot cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot cheaper than standing up an EC2 instance that's on all day long. Yeah. Right? And then, so we have this, this, this fabric, this layer that we call Nucleus that sits on top of it that kind of shepherds data in and out of all these different systems. Right now, there's a big disposition to what we're doing with business intelligence. So I've taken okay. a little bit of a backseat to the production management stuff, um, but it sits on top of it, um, doing some really wild things, you know, building global, uh, yeah, a global time card system, but, you know, one that maybe people hate less, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, a scheduling system, you know, to do resource planning, um, we're building, you know, bid publishing and things like really sophisticated, you know, web stack applications and, you know, right. built on this framework that helps kind of, I, I call it, you just giving people superpowers, right? How do you give, mm -hmm. you know, an artist or developer, you know, a superpower to do something, you know, that they maybe don't have all that domain expertise. Um, you do it by building these wrappers that help do those things. And so right. the team, I have a, a great team of, you know, a bunch of developers who are, you know, at different levels, you know, really kind of flexing their muscles in, you know, full stack development, but really coming a lot of them from, 
roots, you know, in traditional VFX pipeline and solving right. really hard problems about how to manage, you know, the success of a company, you know, like revenue recognized or gross profit margins and dealing with things like ADP. They're not sexy, but mm-hmm. when you sew a thread that ties it into the production tracking system, it's pretty cool. Like, you know, imagine doing like a chart that showed you bubbles of you know, your business and which ones are the biggest projects and which ones are the smallest projects. And imagine going into a bubble and finding a sequence and then clicking on the sequence and it automatically opens up RV with the latest versions, right? I, because of the experience I've had in visual effects, I can kind of tie the business intelligence into the experience and the artifacts around production experiences. So I find it really empowering. Yeah. I think it's bigger. That's pretty, that's again, another very ambitious project. You seem to be doing a lot of those. So, yeah. So, yeah. I, so, I so that's what you're in the middle of doing right now, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. And yeah. you've, yeah. you've been at Fuse like less than a year, right? Two years now. Two years. Okay. Oh, coming on two years now. Yeah. And so wow. All right. Fuse has been growing. They um, merged with a company called Folks. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, battery time. Um, so now we had two production pipelines. They also merged with RSP, so Rising Sun okay. Pictures. Also yep. another, you know, shotgun-enabled company. We recently acquired, um, merged with another company in Spain called El Ranchito. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of work being produced here, and there's quite the appetite to kind of consolidate, you know, the production pipelines and the business intelligence pipeline into things that are that are really efficient and lean and scalable. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Well, we've gone a little long, but I don't think Sorry. that's a problem. No, 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 no. It's, it's all good. I wanted to make sure we had the, 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 the whole story. But uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, what is – okay, so th- this is going to be a difficult question, but we'll try to end on this. What do you think – what do you think is you've noticed a lot of stuff in the visual effects industry, obviously in the business side of things. What is a trend that you're noticing that's going on right now that you think is going to be an important one that's going to change the way that uh, that we operate as as businesses? There's so many different trends. I, right now, the trend that I'm gravitate to is, is this notion of you know services microservices that help okay. kind of service um, our industry, our businesses. Um, you may not realize mm-hmm. them, but they're, they're out in the wild. Um, web stacks are becoming more and more a part of the visual effects stack, sometimes to hide you know, some of the, um, the magic. <laughs> you, know, like you look at mid-journey, right? You, you, yeah. you have this AI that you know, runs on services that sit in the cloud, right? Yep. You have, you know, MetaHuman that's probably backed by, you know, a cloud service in from Unity that does these things. I, I tend to think that microservices... MetaHuman is, is, um, is epic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I believe that they... I believe that some of these things are back-ended by, you know, web Absolutely. services. So um, my, my, vis- my theory is, is that you're going to see more and more of these services find their way into our workflows that kind of make, 
they're like the magic eight ball where you shake them and out the other end comes something magical, right? They tell you a business in for, like for my, in my case, a lot of times you shake the magic eight ball to find out something about your business or you shake the magic eight ball and out comes, you know, uh, a meta human or you shake the magic eight ball and out comes the other end, you know, some, you know, you know, mid journey, like, you know, AI representation of what you could dream about. But I think what's amazing to me, I think you're right. I think you're right. But to, to, what's amazing to me is like, you know, mid journey is so far different from anything that I've used in the way that it operates. Yep. Like the fact that you go onto a discord <laughs> yep. and use slash imagine and just yes. start typing yes. words and yes. that's what generates the image. Exactly. The fact that exactly. it's on a discord, the fact that it's just weird prompts on a discord and is run by bots. Yes. Like it's so, so different and so cool too. I definitely think it's cool. So but, from my uh, perspective, I, from pipeline, I think that really like you're going to see pipeline developers get to the point where they're like, I don't want to write another submitter, a loader, a publisher, and they're going to have this appetite to do something so much bigger than that. Right. Right. And, and my vision of, of where we go in this industry is that cloud, you know, does it. And some of these web stacks are doing some really remarkable things. I'm going to give you just a little, little example. Um, sure. We use material UI. It's a kind of a kind mm -hmm. of a web stack library for building user interfaces. I've, I've used it for a, a long time at um, came out of Google, right? Uh, Facebook or Google. Yeah, Google got them mixed Google. up. Yeah. And I was looking at some of the no, new components and I'm like, oh, there's a query component. And I looked at the query component and it looks exactly like, you know, shotgun query. Like mm -hmm. I want to see this field. It is this, it isn't that, it's that. And so now you're basically making, you're commoditizing this really like, um, if you think about shotgun, really the power of shotgun has been this Excel grid view, right? With a query component on the, on the top right-hand corner that can basically build you a query that can tell you whatever you need to know. I call it the magic eight ball, right? Right. And so you, I, I, we started kind of building an abstraction layer to that query component. And I asked, you know, our stack developer, I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if I could say, hey, Alexa, I want to I wanna look at all the data from every location that's this, that's that. You know, wouldn't it be great if we had verbal translation of, you know, of me articulating a query and it yields a response, right? The same as mid-journey and Discord, like you said. And yeah, then I called exactly. up our AWS guy. He's like, yeah, we got that. It's already there in right. AWS. You can, you, there's a query, you know, uh, a language that it, uh, it'll translate the natural way you, language, natural language, right. translate your language into a query to a MySQL query. I'm like, that's cool. That's where I think things go. Right. Right. Like, Hey, do my time card. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do my time card. It, that's exactly what right. it should be doing. It should. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I see that you published this shot. I see that you, you touch this shot. You save this mm -hmm. scene. That's what, it, honestly, that's what it should be. Right. Yep. Yeah. And that yeah. makes a better business, right? Yep. And that basically keeps more of us employed, right? Because then yep. our margins, you know, are not as slim as they 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 were before, right? Mm -hmm. I, I kind of think technology can help solve some of those challenges. Yeah. Yeah. That's that would be that would be great. That would be amazing. 
Yeah, it would be great. Well, that is a very interesting, uh, very interesting uh, answer, which is which is really cool because it's funny because a lot of people now are talking about virtual production or whatever. But you're like, no, no, no. Let's think about beyond that. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I, I can tell you a place where I see all these things that I'm talking about, like this React. I think mm -hmm. they belong in virtual production too, right? Yeah, of course. Of, Instead of us building these cockamamie, sorry, I use the word cockamamie, I might be old soul, but you know, these iOS apps that are like one, one trick ponies, imagine building these apps, you know, the same way I'm talking about these ephemeral apps to control the virtual production set, drive the right. lighting, drive this. Imagine it was as easy as you slinging Python code, sending it to AWS and, and basically having some secure access to it Right. I, I just think that largely developers in our industries have kind of had a limited exposure to, you know, cloud stacks. And I think when you start to see them kind of, you know, flourish and blossom into some of these cloud stacks, you're going to see a lot of neat things find their way into virtual production, too. Right. 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 Yeah. I mean, that's that's a thing. But yeah, virtual production is going to could definitely benefit from that as well. So that's yeah. cool. All right. Well, Mike, thank you so much for this amazing journey that you took us through and to be able to talk through, uh, about some of the incredible stuff that you've done. Sure. It's always good seeing you. We should see each other. I think the last time we ran into each other was actually at Disneyland. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I saw you. I was like, that's Mike Robbie. Because obviously you were still working at Disney at the time. And so you had the, the, the employee pass. Yeah. Uh, and, and you were giving us the lowdown on how to navigate the fast passes to get to, uh, uh yeah. on, uh, I think, yeah, we were in California, uh, California venture, uh, at that time. So it was fun. Yeah. So, well, I hope everything you guys are doing well too. You know, I miss seeing yeah. you guys and uh, I can't wait for things to get a little bit more normal. I was, it'd be, it'd be great to do one of these, you know, as a round table event with you one day. Um, okay. Yeah, person. we definitely could could do that. Yeah, I, we, I've actually been having conversations about starting roundtables again. So that'd be a, a good thing. But I'm sure at some point things will ease up and people will start going back to offices a little bit more. I kind of like the the not necessarily having to do that. But at some point, a good visit to Zoic. Uh, I mean, sorry to uh, <laughs> to Fuse would be in the works, which yeah. would be great because you guys are just you're still in that office down there, right? In, yeah, uh, in Van Nuys, um, and mm -hmm. then. But now there's just, it's just, it's just ballooning. So there's offices in a lot of, in BC, yeah, it sounds in Toronto, like it. Montreal, New York, Georgia, um, Bogota. <laughs> so maybe we'll be in a there different office. There you go. <laughs> there you go. All right, Mike. Well, have a good one. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye, Chris. <laughs>